Eu sou Mariano de Arcos e você está assistindo Guerrilha Cultural. Eu aqui em Guerrilha Cultural. Hoje nós trouxemos um dos mais capazes minds of our times, e Michael Jones. Eu tenho lido alguns dos seus livros no último ano e eu acredito que ele tem chegado a muitas conclusões muito conclusions que podem ser útil para entender a realidade aqui no Brasil e provavelmente em qualquer lugar do mundo. But first, I do have to say that he's an author that very powerful people don't want you to know. Since I scheduled an interview with him, he was censored from several social medias. So first, thank you for being here, Mr. Jones, and why they are trying to censor you? Uh, say that again. I'm having trouble hearing you. Oh, okay. Um, why are they trying to censor you? Why are you being censored in some well, of social medias? I have, I have a, mil a, a military friend who said... Uh, the only time you get flack is when you're over the target. So I think yeah. that's why they're trying to censor me. They're, uh, I'm over the target. So uh, to give you just one instance, <clears throat> uh, my, bo my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, came out 11 years ago, and uh, no one on the other side was able to provide any refutation of what I said in that book. So after 11 years, they finally, uh, according, they think they did, but they, they tried to resolve the issue simply by banning the book. So after years on Amazon, after many favorable reviews, five-star reviews, the book was simply removed. This is the way uh, the situation is evolving here in the United States right now. We are in the middle of a revolution. Uh, this revolution has as it focused the overthrowing of the leader of this country, uh, Donald Trump. It will increase in intensity up until November, and at that point it will be resolved one way or the other, it seems to me. But right now we're in the middle of a revolution, we're in the middle of a cultural revolution, and the main um, method uh, for prosecuting a cultural revolution is the control of information. It's not all that different than uh, a military coup d'etat uh, where the army will seize a radio station. This is, it, it, let's talk about, you know, Guatemala in 1954, small country. If you seize the radio station, you seize control of information. At that point, that was the cutting, uh, cutting edge of technology at that point. Uh, once you seize control of information, then you can uh, explain what is happening and no one can contradict your explanation. So obviously the situation is more um, complicated now. We have more sophisticated channels of communication, but the principle remains the same. In order to seize control, you have to first seize control of information, and you do that by eliminating all competing sources of information and all competing interpretations of what is happening. And that's why my books were banned from Amazon, and that's why my channel was removed from YouTube. Yeah, that's a, a thought crime that we are having up right now, to institute the thought crime finally. Well, with that all being said, we'll change the subject to the main topic I would like to discuss, because I think uh, your insights would be interesting to some Brazilian issues. Probably you already know that our current president, Jair Bolsonaro, is a conservative. However, not so many people outside Brazil know very well how he became popular and rose to power. Well, Brazil is a country that has been politically left-wing since the end of our military dictatorship in the 80s, when the corrupt elites made an alliance with uh, old communist revolutionaries to form a new kind of democratic republic that uh, they have the arrangements of corruption. 
For decades, the only allowed speech was the typical propaganda of the communists in the awkward alliance with the capitalist elites. However, it all started to fall apart when an unknown politician, Bolsonaro, started to denounce that the elites were trying to push homosexual propaganda to little children, and the media tried to portray him as a sort of public enemy, and that made him very popular in the country. The people enjoyed him even though the media wanted to destroy him over the issue of the homosexual propaganda. Uh, but this sounds very odd. Why sex is such an important thing to those people with lots of money and power on their hands? Why this thing matters? Because sex is the most effective form of control uh, you can have. Now, no, this wasn't apparent uh, a long time ago, uh, because in order to use sex as a form of political control, you have to have a certain type of technology. But the, the idea became uh, apparent uh, during the run-up uh, to the French Revolution. Uh, there was a uh, an aristocrat, actually a cousin of the King of France, his name was... Uh, the the uh, it was uh, Philip uh, d'Orléans, the Duke of Orléans, uh, and uh, he had uh, a a a an operation in Paris that was known as the Palais Royal. The Palais Royal was a place where a normal all, all normal censorship of material. Uh, simply did not happen. It was it was an we could we might call it an autonomous cultural space within <laughs> Paris and within France, immune from the laws, and uh, they used this as a way of bringing in uh, propaganda from the uh, from the English. The English were using Masonic lodges to uh, undermine the Bourbon monarchy, but also the promotional pornography. So there was, it was a politicized pornography in which Marie Antoinette was portrayed in various obscene drawings as engaging in sexual activity. Uh, the man who picked this up and, and understood its implications was the Marquis de Sade. He's the man who uh, initiated the French Revolution from his cell in the Bastille. What, what, what the problem at this point was technological. Everyone knew from the time of uh, the writing of the Gospels, that there was such a thing as the slavery of sin. Uh, we, we would um, call it sexual addiction in our day. But there was a concept known that if you gave in to vice, that uh, vice would become a tyrant and it would rule your life. But it wasn't until we had the technological uh, opportunities available to us that you could actually mobilize that politically. And so at this point, technology meant books, with drawings, lithographs, etchings, that type of thing. Uh, uh, but uh, it, the Marquis de Sade said at one point, when the Vendée was about to happen, that uh, they needed to uh, display women naked in the theaters because this would arouse passion, and passion was the engine that drove the revolution. But the problem, of course, is technological. If you have a big theater, it's hard to see the women. If you have a small theater, you can see the women, but you don't have, you're not going to affect many people. This changed in the 20th century with the development of the motion picture. Uh, and uh, Hollywood became one of the, the center of motion picture production in the United States of America. 
and uh, Hollywood was controlled by Jews. It was created by Jews, it was controlled by Jews, and they began to use uh, the film, mass media, as a, a, a medium for moral subversion uh, through portraying uh, nudity, uh, obscenity, uh, blasphemy, attacks on clergy, and so on and so forth. The people were outraged. Uh, they wanted to do something. The Protestants failed. Eventually, the Catholics brought the Jews under control. But this didn't change the fact that the dynamic in general. And uh, in 1965, the Jews broke the uh, production code, which the Catholics had established. And at that point, we see the march uh, up to this day, because once they were allowed to do that, they were uh, allowed to produce uh, um, um, nudity in films, things like that. They could take control of the mind of the people uh, by enslaving them to vice. The culmination of this was the legalization of pornography, and as a result, there were, uh, by the uh, just the uh, beginning of the 21st century, large numbers of people were simply addicted to pornography, which they could obtain over the internet uh, through cell phones, things like that. That's that's the situation we have uh, we are in right now. We're we're seeing the culmination of that situation, where large numbers of people have are leading miserable lives because of the addiction. Uh, I brought this up in a book uh, called Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. Uh, and uh, many people, after reading the book or simply hearing the concept that sexual liberation was political control, broke their addiction to pornography and started coming around uh, converting to Catholicism. This was Someone who knew, understood the dynamics here was Wilhelm Reich, who wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism in the 1930s. And he was the one who developed what the Marquis de Sade said uh, into the 20th century, uh, when he said that basically there's no point in debating the existence of God with a priest, just get him involved in sexual activity and the idea of God will evaporate. That was the Jewish strategy behind uh, the promotion of pornography. The idea, if you get involved in sexual sin, the idea of God evaporates. Once the idea of God evaporates, you lose contact with the moral law. Once you lose contact with the moral law, then uh, there another law has to take its place, and that is the law of political correctness, which we have now, which did take its place in the educational system. That's what happened. So there, as I said, there were a group of people who awoke to the fact that it was slavery and rejected it, but there are another group of people who have been who did not do this. And the result is that their lives are uh, 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 an example of the slavery. Uh, it leads to the slavery of sin, which leads to self-contempt, which leads to anger. And now what we're seeing is there are people who are trying to mobilize that anger by getting mobs on the street. Antifa is one example. Uh, a Jew, that's a Jewish organization. Uh, Black Lives Matter is taking the anger that is, uh, came out of the black community here because of uh, widespread illegitimacy and absent fathers. And that anger is being channeled now uh, politically against a political opponent. And that's uh, what's happening in the United States right now. Okay. Um... 
You touched on two topics that I think that are interesting. So let's go to the first one. You talk about William Reich. We talked someone that uh, is specialized in social engineering. Because usually when you talk about the basic conservative, they only talk about one guy, that is Antonio Gramsci, but they don't talk about this William Reich. And there's other person that you cite on the, on the Libero Dominante, that is Carl Rogers. What are the main names of uh, the minds of uh, social engineering that managed to create uh, such a powerful uh, power over sex or propaganda of sex that managed to fall down the structure that the Catholics managed to put on the United States to control pornography, how they managed to put it down? Uh, well, uh, Wilhelm Reich was not alone in this regard. He's not particularly, he's not known as a psychologist, but he was influenced by a psychologist. Uh, he, Wilhelm Reich lived in Vienna during the 1920s and 1930s, and the psychologist he was in, influenced by was Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud uh, was the, in many ways the father of modern psychology. And uh, he created a system of control that was based on uh, his understanding of the Illuminati, which was a group of uh, revolutionaries at the time of uh, the French Revolution, shortly before that, 1776, uh, they were f created in Bavaria at the University of Ingolstadt, and it was based on uh, the Jesuit examination of conscience. Uh, uh, Adam Weishaupt called that system Seelenanalyse which is the German term, and Sigmund Freud simply took it and turned it into Greek, and he called it psychoanalysis. And basically, you would ask the uh, patient, if you're Sigmund Freud, to talk about his life. And Freud did this to everyone who wanted to become a psychiatrist, had to go and lie down on the couch in Vienna with Sigmund Freud and talk about his life. And during that conversation, it invariably you'd start talking about the sins you committed because everyone knew this was a kind of secular version of confession. So one of the Americans who came to him was a man by the name of Horace Frink announced that uh, he uh, was having an affair with one of his patients. So Freud, instead of telling him this is unethical, you shouldn't be doing this, Freud said, Uh, divorce your wife, marry this rich patient, and then make a significant contribution to the psychoanalytic society. So <laughs> this was a, a form of control. It was obviously a form of control, but it was on a very small scale. It was basically doctor-patient relationship, the doctor exploiting the patient for financial gain. Uh, Reich combined that with his Marxism, and that was uh, on the way. At this point, it became... Uh, applicable on a larger scale. That's what Reich was talking about. His book is The Mass Psychology. He's talking about mass psychology, not just individual psychology. Okay, there were other people who developed Freud's ideas, and one of them was his nephew, a man by the name of Eddie Bernays, who is the father of advertising and public relations. And so he would uh, have wealthy clients, and he would uh, get uh, uh, use psychology to sell their products. <clears throat> One of his first customers was uh, the tobacco industry. Uh, and so he organized a mass demonstration on uh, Easter Sunday, the Easter parade in New York, and I believe it was 1928. 
where he got women to walk down the street lighting up cigarettes because he wanted to expand the market uh, just from men. Men were the only people who smoked cigarettes. If you or a woman who smoked cigarettes, men thought you were a prostitute. So he wanted to break down that that uh, uh, stereotype, and that's how he got involved in doing that. So each in libido dominandi, it, it, I talk about each form of modern psychology. Modern psychology, I'm sorry, libido dominandi is in many ways a history of modern psychology. Uh, and all of the forms of modern psychology were forms of social engineering and control. So the first, I've already talked about Sigmund Freud, the American reaction to that was behaviorism. That was obviously a form of control, uh, social managing people. Uh, uh, Watson said that, John B. Watson said that in his book, Behaviorism. He said at the very beginning that it was a form of control and that we shouldn't be worried because uh, in wartime, you always have forms of control. Uh, Watson then went on to, uh, after a scandal where he got involved with a sexual affair with one of his students at Johns Hopkins. He went on, went to Madison Avenue, just where uh, Louis Bernays was, and he would advertise there as well. Uh, he worked for the advertising industry, and he uh, had rich clients there as well. The other force would be uh, Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers came after World War II, uh, largely developing the theories of a, 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 a Jewish psychologist by the name of Kurt Levine, who worked for the Office of Naval Information. And this was sort of the intermediary between mass psychology and individual psychology. It was group psychology. And uh, Carl Rogers, who was a Quaker, understood that you could uh, use groups to coerce people into conformity. And uh, he de developed something called the sensitivity, sensitivity training or the T group. And uh, he tried it out on a group of uh, nuns in uh, Los Angeles uh, during the 1960s, 1965 to be exact, uh, because the nuns were told that after the Vatican II, they had to re orient, update their order to make it in conformity with uh, a modern understanding of psychology and so on and so forth. That order was wrecked by Carl Rogers. I talked to his assistant. I, I was the first one to publish the story of the Immaculate Heart Nuns. And after long conversations with his assistant, I finally convinced him that it was deliberate. I think Carl Rogers knew what he was doing. He knew that this these techniques would have a devastating effect on the religious orders, and he used them anyway. So what you saw here is uh, over this period of time, all of these potent psychological weapons that would take, uh, the oligarchs would take control of them through their various foundations and institutions, and then they would use them as weapons against their enemies. And the main enemy uh, during this period of time was the Catholic Church. Oh, I think this is a, uh, the story of the friars that uh, you told in Libera Dominan, I think that's one of the saddest uh, stories I ever heard because so many people apostatizing at the same time, just depressing. But uh, let's go to another topic, but it's kind of related because you talk about BLML, uh, BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter, and Antifa. So there is uh, this issue of criminality here. Those people that commit crimes every time, and the same people Punishing for the punishment of sexual thought crimes, you mean like when they censor you about on libido dominante and stuff like this, also keep pushing an agenda of a softer treatment of actual criminals. 
how are those things related? Are crimes, sex, fraud crimes related? How come? Well, the, the, the link here, the crucial link is education. Because uh, the revolutionaries took over education during this period of time. Uh, and that meant uh, that certain figures became key figures in helping us to understand reality. Uh, so uh, one of these key figures was uh, Michel Foucault, who was a Catholic uh, and a homosexual. He could not resolve those issues, uh, uh, but he never stopped being a Catholic. So he, he took, in, in many ways, Catholic thought and weaponized it because he was a homosexual with a grudge against the world. Uh, so the Catholic concern for the marginalized, let's say, the Catholic concern for the poor, that's an inextricable part of Catholicism. But you can use it as a form of revolutionary activity, as the basis for revolutionary activity. And, and in, in a sense, the French Revolution was the model for this. You know, the poor people, you, you feel that you have some justification for what you're doing because there are people who are poor and there are people who are rich and the rich have too much and the poor don't have enough. And this was one of the driving forces behind the French Revolution. And Michel Foucault was a Frenchman and he was a, a revolutionary. He was a sexual revolutionary. And he understood this and he created this kind of ideology of the marginalized, which allowed you to overturn the social order uh, as a form of some type of social justice. Now, once you transpose that to America, the main issue is going to be race. It's not an issue in France, but it is an issue in America because there were large numbers of slaves brought over here to work on the cotton plantations. And this was always a source of ill ease in the United States of America. Uh, which was founded by two documents which contradicted each other. The Declaration of Independence said all men were equal, and the Constitution said that Negroes were three-fifths, counted to be three-fifths of uh, white people. So it was always there, and the revolutionaries, uh, I'm talking about the Jewish revolutionaries who came over largely at the end of the 19th century, uh, beginning with the pogroms in, in uh, Russia, uh, saw this as an opportunity. So from pretty much from the moment they got here, the moment they got established here, uh, they began to work for uh, a slave rebellion. There had been a slave rebellion in Haiti uh, right after the French Revolution. Uh, this had haunted the South. The South was afraid of nothing so much as a slave rebellion. And the Jews, uh, once they got established, started promoting the idea. Uh, the, the key point in this regard was um, the lynching of Leo Frank. He was a Jewish uh, factory owner who was convicted of murder and child molestation, convicted and sentenced to death, and the sentence never got carried out. It kept being postponed. And finally, the governor of uh, Georgia commuted the sentence, and at that point, there were a group of people who were outraged at this, and they lynched him. At this point, the Jews declared war on the South. Okay, this is uh, Harold Cruz's thesis about the civil rights movement. And they did whatever they could within their power to orchestrate race, uh, race uh, con racial conflict. Uh, this never stopped. It reached its culmination. Uh, it was interrupted by the world wars, by the depression, uh, but it never stopped. And after the world war, within four years, 
uh, within, let's say, no, uh, let's say nine years of the end of the World War II, we had the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus School Board, which was based on what Murray Friedman, the Jewish writer, called Jewish science, which is basically sociology and psychology. And uh, this uh, was uh, created by another group of Jews uh, known as the Frankfurt School that were brought over here after Hitler took power in Germany. Uh, they were put to work by a group known as the American Jewish Committee uh, during the late 40s and early 50s, and they produced a book called The Authoritarian Personality, uh, which basically, again, demonized the majority of the people. Uh, they, uh, this was an attempt to explain fascism, the rise of fascism, and uh, like Reich, they claimed that the, the uh the family structure, uh, religion, all these things were bad things because it led to the rise of fascism. That led to the Supreme Court decision uh, striking down desegregation, and that led to the civil rights movement, which was an insurrection. Certainly in the South, it was a revolutionary movement in the South. Now, every single child who goes to public school and probably Catholic school in the United States of America learns one thing and probably one thing only, and that is the civil rights movement. That child learns to identify with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, the lady who sat at the front of the bus uh, in the South. The result was you revolutionized pretty much the entire school population of the United States of America over this period of time. You made them receptive to revolutionary ideas, which were primarily Jewish revolutionary ideas. And at a certain point, uh, you created groups that were going to enforce these ideas, impose these ideas on the population with violent, violent means. And those two groups are the groups I mentioned, Black Lives Matter, which came into existence after the, the death of Trayvon Martin uh, and was weaponized in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, a few years back after the death of Michael Brown. Now, every day of the week you know, on the south side of Chicago, black people kill other black people, and it never makes the news. The only time any of these killings make the news is when it's a white policeman killing a black man. And that's precisely what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis. And after all these years, suddenly you had a group of people who could mobilize largely because of technology and take over uh, large section segments of the of the country, uh, especially cities where the mayor or the district attorney had been appointed with George Soros money. George Soros, the Hungarian Jew, uh, used uh, put thirty three million dollars into Black Lives Matter to create race war. The Jews have never stopped wanting to create race war. They are involved in it right now. And we're, this is going to lead up to whether the question is whether they can depose Donald Trump and create a full-blown revolution uh, between now and November. I think there is an interesting stuff that uh, you said here about the, the money, about the source money entering uh, there. Because here in Brazil, we have a very similar situation because in the 90s, it starts to get in Brazil the idea of race. Brazil is a basically a Catholic country. We are founded, founded by the Portuguese, who are very Catholic, and Catholic until the 90s. We had 90% of our population was Catholic. So the Ford Foundation come here 
and they go to the workers' workers' party. That's basically the socialist country, the party that uh, ruled Brazil for very long. And he said to one of his leaders, the leader of the workers' party, told everyone this: that the Ford Foundation said, "I will give you uh, 15 uh, million, and you will find racism, racism in Brazil." So he was saying that he was going to finance it. And uh, since this movement started to begin, like Brazil in the 90s only had, like, well, not only, but is a lot, but uh, had three, uh, 30,000 homicides in a year. But it has grown so many much, uh, so much criminality has grown that in 2018 we get to 65,000 homicides of Brazilian people a year. And in the middle of this time, we have this propaganda that uh, all the criminals are actually victims of society, that the police is racist, that everyone is racist. And uh, how, how can we get this narrative of the idea of control under also the idea of criminality and race? Why those people like George Soros, the Ford Foundation, are keeping funding this kind of movement that uh, only causes chaos like criminals? Well, George Soros is a Jewish revolutionary, and he, he understands that uh, how to manipulate race in the United States of America, because there was always uh, a, a racial, in some sense, a racial problem here. There was a, a large racial identity. America had a racial identity, because in the South, you were white or you were black. The, th the one thing that contested that identity was the North and the Catholics. This is uh, Dorothy Tillman was Martin Luther King's uh, assistant when he moved to Chicago and he tried to impose these, the ideas of the South, the situation of the South on Chicago, and it didn't apply. There was no segregation in Chicago. All of the neighborhoods were divided up according to ethnic groups. This was the Catholic way of dealing uh, with a city, colonizing a city. So there was a, there was a Lithuanian neighborhood there called Marquette Park. Martin Luther King shows up, and the minute Martin Luther King shows up, the Lithuanians are seen as white. Well, they're not white. They didn't think of themselves as white. They thought of themselves as Lithuanians. They came from Lithuania, where there were no black people, so they couldn't be white. As soon as they were identified as white, they became the villain. And this is precisely what is going on right now. Okay, you have to, people like George Soros, Jewish revolution, this is a Jewish revolution, it's a Jewish-funded, Jewish-led revolution, okay? But in order to succeed, you have to impose a racial uh, template on top of what is happening. You, and, and so you have to say that it's black versus white because those, those descriptions have moral uh, meaning. In America, because now it used to be if you were in the South, white was good and black was bad. Now it's the reverse because we're in a revolutionary situation. So now white is bad and black is good. This is exactly what is happening right now as we speak in St. Louis. You've got a, a man who shows up. He's a, a former cab driver. No one ever heard of him. And he announces that uh, the city has to take down the statue of St. Louis and rename the city. Well, why is anyone taking this man seriously? Well, because the Jewish press took him seriously and they wrote articles about him. And then as soon as they wrote articles about him, the mainstream press started writing articles about him because they're controlled by Jews as well. 
And at that point, well, he's serious. We have to take him seriously because he was on MSNBC, which is the ultimate criterion of reality. Or the New York Times. The New York Times says something favorable about you, then you're, you're a leader. Well, what is he doing, though? He understands the situation. He understands that basically the issue of St. Louis has no resonance with black people whatsoever. St. Louis was the king of France in the 13th century. He did not own slaves. There were no black slaves in France at this time. So why is why is St. Louis important? Well, it turns out that he burned the Talmud. Well, at this point, we suddenly see who's behind this revolution. It's not black people. It's the Jews. And they've held this grudge for eight centuries. They have long memories. Okay, so he understands that. He's got to get the Jews on his side. So therefore, he's going to attack St. Louis. But he can't do it on religious terms because then uh, you're discriminating. You're not allowed to do that in the United States of America. We have three main religious groups, maybe four now, but Protestant, Catholic, Jew, and maybe Muslim. This man claims to be a Muslim. There's more Muslims here now than, than before. Okay, but all of them are officially recognized as religions with the protection that religious religions have. In other words, no one can discriminate against them. No one can prohibit their worship. Well, if he if he starts this battle, if he describes this battle as a battle between Catholics and Jews, that's not going to go anywhere. So what he has to do is engage in identity theft. So he tweets uh, an announcement saying white supremacists are coming to the statue. White nationalists from uh, Charlottesville, where they had the big white demonstration, is coming to to the statue. They're going to demonstrate at the statue. Well, immediately, the group that is going to the statue announces, no, we're not white, we're Catholic, and we're going to pray the rosary. Well, as soon as you say that, you ruin the revolutionary dynamics. But the word gets out that they're white, so Black Lives Matter shows up, and because Black Lives Matter is now morally superior because of the color of their skin, uh, they go and they beat up a Catholic because they're claiming he's white. And if he's white, he's racist. And if he's racist, he's wrong. And if he's wrong, he has no rights. Now, this is the dynamic of the revolution here in the United States right now, as of today. It has no relevance whatsoever to Brazil. None. Because Brazil has never had racial conflict and they've never had racial separation. The entire country is... Um, mixed a mixture of, of uh, uh, three at least three separate races the indigenous uh, the black slaves and the the uh, the Portuguese who came there at, at having it as a colony the same thing is true of Mexico Mexico is mestiza it's a mixture of European and Indian it has no relevance there and so but but it, but it, it has relevance because the United States is the global Hegemon, the, United, the American empire rules the world. And so the pattern that gets established in the United States gets established elsewhere simply because of the fact that Americans are imposing it on you. And that's precisely what the Ford Foundation did. It's an American foundation, obviously. And they were in the forefront of attacking the Catholic Church during the 1960s. I wrote a book called The Slaughter of Cities, which described in detail how the Ford Foundation was involved in the ethnic cleansing of Catholic neighborhoods and big cities in America. And they're using the same template, they're using the same plan uh, and trying to impose it on Brazil where it has no relevance.
This does not apply to Brazil. Admittedly, uh, the case in Brazil is actually very interesting because they start to publish tweets saying that they were pulling down statues and one of the key statues of Brazil is the statue of Princess uh, uh, Princess Elizabeth the Redemptor. She was the lady that uh, signed the bill that abolished slavery in Brazil. Slavery was abolished in Brazil without any sort of conflict. So when they said that uh, they want to destroy the figure of uh, of Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth, because uh, they think because they're, she's Catholic, she's a white Catholic, she could not be the representative of the movement that abolishes slavery. But uh, when you see what actually happened is that the Catholic Church here in Brazil took a lot of effort and fight against the Freemasons and the uh, secular and the liberals to free uh, the slaves. That's all the history. Even the Pope, when the slavery was over, he gave a golden rose to our princess to thank Brazil for liberating the slaves. But I would like to change the topic a little bit because uh, I'm afraid with the time. Um, so the Brazilian conservative movement is in a very heated debate nowadays with uh, everyone working to find an identity uh, an identity out of it. In the past, uh, here in Brazil, we just uh, wanted to deny what the communists were doing and truly did uh, a big success of uh, getting the communists away, thankfully to the work of a conservative Catholic named uh, Olavo de Carvalho, who exposed us not only how bad the communist worldview was, but also gave us a life that we needed uh, honest people dedicated to what you call logos, the intellectual life, and not only anti-communism. However, the alone work of Olavo de Carvalho, of only one man, is surely not enough to cover a whole replacement of the old uh, socialist paradigm that lasted decades. So a lot of people just start to copy whatever the American conservatives are doing. I mean, the American neoconservatives, as you call. But now that we are in a, a movement with a proper dignity, real debates are happening. And one of those that I think is very crucial is the influence of the Austrian school of economics mindset and also the influence of Protestant evangelicals in Brazil and in the conservative movement of Brazil and the neoconservative movement. Uh, I would like you to give uh, your views on both the Austrian School for Economics and this new movement that is called the evangelicals that is just uh, they're slowly replacing the Brazilian Catholics. In the 90s, as I told you, 90% of Brazil was Catholic. Now uh, about half of Brazil became evangelical. So I would like you to discuss about those two issues. Yes, first of all, uh, the Rockefeller family promoted Protestant sects in South America for one reason, because the Protestant sects allowed birth control. And the Rockefellers wanted to control the population. They wanted to reduce population growth in South America. That is the sole reason why you have Protestant sects in South America. It's a form of birth control. Okay, the second, uh, what, what, what was the second issue? What were we talking about? Oh, we're talking about conservatism. Okay, uh, Austrian, the, oh, oh, uh, Austrian school yeah, economics. Yes, yes. Austrian school economics is a, a form of, of uh, uh, libertarianism, uh, uh, which is a completely obsolete uh, economic idea. It's also uh, Jewish. Uh, if you, uh, Murray Rothbart wrote a book on money. If you want to understand what this is all about, read Murray Rothbart's book on money. Uh, 
uh, where he talks about how they like, uh, he thinks in deflation is a good idea because when deflation happens, his ducats swell. That's his term, ducat. This comes right from the merchant of Venice. This is Jewish economics where you want to make the majority suffer so that because you have gold and your gold increases with value when everybody else's uh, uh, money goes down. Now, what what is the institution or what is the ideology that links uh, Rockefeller birth control and Austrian school economics? It's known as conservatism. Conservatism is a Trojan horse. And the same thing happened to the United States of America over the period of my lifetime. Okay, so when I was born, uh, World War II had just ended and there was fear of communism. And so the Catholic Church got uh, uh, brought into the anti-communist crusade and they called themselves conservatism, conservatives. Calling yourself a conservative is analogous to saying that you're white. Okay, it's it's another identity. You're adopting another identity. This is a political identity as opposed to a racial identity. But it has the same purpose because basically anyone who controls the definition of conservatism controls the mind of the people who are are part of that movement. So you had an anti-communist movement in the United States. It was led by conservatives. And suddenly we had a situation where the Soviet Union collapsed. It didn't collapse because of conservatism. It collapsed because of Catholicism, namely uh, Pope John Paul II. He was the one who brought communism down. He allied himself with Ronald Reagan and the American government. And that's a political alliance. And there are liabilities associated with that. And basically, once again, we had identity theft. Catholic identity was stolen, this time by conservatives, by conservatives. Now, Jews are traditionally socialists and communists. There's no question about that. But at a certain and and this was also true of the neoconservatives. This is a movement that comes up. It's largely a Jewish movement uh, led by a man named Irving Kristol, who's the father of neoconservatism. He was a Trotskyite in the 1930s. He got disillusioned with the Soviet Union because they didn't like the way they were treating Jews at that point, And he created a new political movement. And this political movement took over the White House in 2000 with George Bush and got America involved in the Iraq war. Now, uh, these people did not like Donald Trump. Conservatism is a dead issue. It is an obsolete form of revolutionary activity. It's over. It's gone. It was killed by a combination of Pope Francis and and, uh, Donald Trump. It is no longer operative and there is no point Uh, in attaching yourself to an obsolete political movement. Unfortunately, that's not the case in Brazil. You have a neoconservative who is now president of Brazil. Bolsonaro is a friend of Israel. He's a friend of uh, Bibi Netanyahu. And as a result, he will be uh, not representing, to the extent that he is a friend of Israel, he will not represent the interests of Brazilians, many of whom are, are Catholic. Yeah, the, that's, I think that's the heart of the debate right now, because we managed to get, make like a big anti-communist front that elected Bolsonaro, but inside that front, there was different kind of people, because you have now, uh, you have people that are Catholics, that are struggling to, uh, to make a new identity, an identity called Catholics, we have the evangelicals that were 
the hardest push for Bolsonaro. And there was a third thing, that is the positivism. Because Brazil is actually, the Republic of Brazil is a country founded on the idea of Augusto Comte. If you see the flag of Brazil, you have uh, uh, the positivism um, symbol, that is order and progress. And I saw that you also commented a bit on Augusto Conte. Could you comment a little bit on it? Yes, it's a religion based on science. That's what Comte did. There was uh, he was a French Catholic who converted to the Enlightenment and decided that Catholicism was obsolete. But he kept all the forms of Catholicism and created a new religion, which was the worship of science. These are all obsolete ideologies. Why, why, are, why are the Brazilian people attaching themselves to obsolete ideologies like positivism, uh, libertarianism, uh, conservatism, Austrian school economics, Zionism? They're all obsolete ideologies which will disguise the true nature of the battle right now, which is between Catholics and Jews. That's the battle right now. For, uh, uh, that's the battle in the United States. The United States is the world empire. It's the global empire. And that's going to be, by default, the battle in Brazil as well. Yeah, I think also there is a battle here between the influence of America and the influence of China. For example, uh, I think that's what is the right and the left here right now, because uh, China is actually, it's not America, our biggest uh, partner, economical partner. It's currently China. So I see that somehow, how do you see the idea of the American empire? You see that it, it looks like it is collapsing at the same time that a new thing is trying to replace it. And uh, you just stated that the new conservative movement uh, was being killed. In Brazil, we are just importing the idea of the neoconservatives right now. But it said that Donald Trump and Pope Francis killed it. Can you comment a little bit more on how come the, on Donald Trump and Pope Francis uh, did it? How, can you explain a little bit your idea well Donald Trump was hated by the conservative establishment in uh, in the Republican Party <clears throat> all of the neoconservatives came out against him Bill Crystal who is the son of Irving Crystal just announced that he's uh, if, if Donald Trump is elected there will be a left-wing cultural revolution in the United States I mean he's, he's almost volunteering to lead the left-wing cultural revolution against Donald Trump and this is there's an irony here because Donald Trump is the most pro-Jewish president in the history of the United States, but he's pro certain kind of Jew. He's he's decided he's cast his lot with the Likudniks, and not every Jew agrees with Likudnik po politics. And the majority of Jews do not, and the majority of the Jews still hate Donald Trump. So the irony here is that uh, uh, Trump is hated because. He's not uh, part of the oligarchic establishment. And the main group that is trying to destroy him is the Jews. Uh, Jews like George Soros, let's say, as, uh, is devoting all of his resources to destroy Donald Trump. And uh, Trump is not going to have get any support from, from Israel on this. It's not going to happen. He, he has to wake up to the fact that his foreign policy is a disaster. And the very people he tried to placate are going to stab him in the back. That's the problem. Pope Francis has, Pope Francis is, I was, I was close to Brazil when I was in Argentina. I was almost at the Brazilian border. And if you want to understand uh, Pope Francis, you have to understand Juan Perón. 
and Juan Perón was the dictator in Argentina, and there was no coherent political philosophy behind Juan Perón. He was just, he was left wing, he was right wing, he started off being a Catholic, talking about Quadragesimo Anno, he became a dictator, there's no coherence. And I, I think that uh, Pope Francis, in many ways, inherited this uh, incoherence from Peronism. Pope, Pope Francis got started in life, uh, his father would organize seminars on Quadragesimo Anno which was the great social encyclical that came out in the 1930s. He has, a, he has a commitment, I think, to that belief, but it's mixed in with all of this other Jesuit prejudice, I have to say. I mean, just the, the Jesuits are, are a disaster. They're one of the greatest, they have greatest orders in the history of the Catholic Church, especially what they did in Brazil. Uh, in Brazil, Paraguay, yes. and Argentina, that area around there, the, the reductions in Paraguay. One of the greatest achievements in human history, okay? But the Jesuits today are a totally, they are a fifth column within the Catholic Church, and they are controlled by Jews and homosexuals. And Francis, uh, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, and he, 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 sim he, he seems incapable of dealing with this. The main promoter of homosexuality in the Catholic Church is James Martin, a Jesuit from New York. And James Martin can get an audience with the Pope with no problem whatsoever. The Pope will spend an hour with him when bishops can't talk to the Pope. So this shows you that, uh, what's the, what am I saying? Jesuit blood runs thicker than water. Okay, I think the, the Jewish issue it needs to be like a separate thing. I think we should have a separate conversation only about this, but uh, I would like to talk a bit about the United States, not exactly the Jew, but the United States. People here in Brazil always go uh, with two different extremes when talking about the United States. Either the Americans are the great villains of history or the great heroes. I think that you can see that uh, that is kind of the left and the right wing position. Uh, the, actually, the first position, like the idea that the American is the great villain, are, is held by both the communists and traditionalists, while the last one is held by both the conservatives and the neocons. And uh, as an American Catholic, what would be a realistic view of America? What exactly is America in history? How can we see America in a realistic sense? America was uh, founded by revolutionaries. Uh, it articulated certain principles that were workable, uh, and it was also an empty country. Uh, and so it provided uh, asylum for refugees from Europe, and it allowed a certain amount of religious freedom to, to people that they, they, they didn't like, and I'm talking primarily about the Catholics now. It was English Protestant revolutionaries Enlightenment thinkers who did not like Catholics at all, but they allowed them to come in, come in, and they allowed them a certain amount of cultural autonomy. For, in this sense, it's like Brazil. I think there's a group called the Los Confederados. They're uh, refugees, the Confederate, uh, after the South lost the war, they went to Brazil and allowed these people some type of cultural autonomy. That was the great strength of America because it allowed people to bring their cultural patrimony open, over to a country that was empty, that had no culture. Uh, it was George Bernard Shaw who said America is a country that went from barbarism to decadence without ever finding civilization along the way. There's an element of truth to that. 
the only culture America had is what the European immigrants brought with them. And they created a vibrant culture here. And that uh, culture was allowed up to World War II. And then after World War II, the oligarchs turned on it and they just destroyed it. First, by ethnic cleansing, the destruction of the neighborhoods. Secondly, by sexual revolution. Destroyed Catholic culture, and that was a way of destroying the country. Because that was the power in this country as of 1960. They, Those people, the Catholics were the people that had the children. They had demographic power. They had political power as a result of demographic power. And because of that, they were in a position to take over. And they did take over when John F. Kennedy was elected and he was murdered. It wasn't a lone deranged gunman. It was the oligarchs. It was the elites. It was the CIA. It was the Jews. They were the ones who killed John F. Kennedy. And that was the opening shot of war against Catholicism that has continued to this day. And we're, we're witnessing it in St. Louis right now. Yeah, um, there is an interesting moment in a debate. I think I sent you, I'm not sure if you already had the opportunity to read uh, with uh, Olavo de Carvalho and Alexander Dugin. That debate kind of made uh, our current sense of geopolitical position of the Brazil and America in the world. And on this debate, uh, Mr. Olavo de Carvalho, that is the Brazilian side, said that uh, he sees America with actually two sides. One of them is what you call the oligarchs, the big, powerful uh, money people, the people, the meta-capitalists uh, is how they call it, like people that don't believe exactly in the nation, but believe in their own money, in their own interests. And you have a deep America that is actually trustworthy, is a good place to be. And uh, how, how do you see it? Do you think the American culture is a subverted Supervated to the, its limits and is uh, pernicious, or do you think the American culture can still stimulate uh, good things? Uh, I think Cavallo is right. Okay, from the beginning there was a conflict between the oligarchs and the majority of the people. At that time they were called creditors and debtors, and the battle was over uh, over money. Uh, if you're talking about the future of America, you have to distinguish between the country and the empire. The empire is 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 dying. The empire is over. It's only a matter of time. The the main the main principle of preserving both the British Empire and the American Empire was to prevent the unification of the Eurasian landmass, which was the, called the McKinder thesis. The Trump administration has accelerated Not only has it not prevented it, it has accelerated the unification of the Eurasian landmass. It drove China into the arms of Russia, and it, it also drove China into the arms of Iran, and Iran into the arms of China. The reason, the reason uh, that Britain had a navy, and the reason America inherited this from Britain was to control the sea lanes. Uh, uh, the, the British Navy is Leviathan. It's the sea monster. And it can punish you if you don't pay your debts. And that was the purpose of the British Navy. And the culmination of this, in some sense, was the Opium Wars in China, where they basically sailed up the Yangtze River and the British Navy destroyed one town after another, humiliating China. It was the greatest humiliation in Chinese history. That was the power of Leviathan, and that power is gone now. 
uh, America inherited the mantle of the British Empire and the British Navy, and it's gone because China now has a railroad that goes from Shanghai to Rotterdam, which means you don't have to use the sea lanes. So Amer- the American Empire is it's only a matter of time. It's going it, it will cease to exist. And that's a good thing because empires are always bad. They achieve some good in spite of themselves. The fact that we are talking in English now and we can communicate with each other is a benefit of the both the British Empire and the American Empire. So that's a good thing. But the empire is a bad thing and it's going to disappear. The question is, what type of republic will replace it? That's the battle right now. Is it going to be uh, Jewish revolutionaries manipulating black proxy warriors uh, in a kind of tyranny where uh, you can get thrown off of uh, the Internet, deprived of access to the information highway because they don't like what you say? That's the battle that's happening right now. Well, that's amazing. That's a very interesting commentary. I do have other questions and subjects to talk with you. Believe me, the Brazilian people, a lot of people are reading your books, your works, and are fascinated. I think you have so many answers to give to Brazil, and uh, but the time is a scarce resource today, so I would like to thank you so much for being here, Mr. Jones. And I already have in mind to call you here later in the future to talk about other subjects. I think uh, your views on the concept of logo, the Jewish questions, and a little bit about uh, your intellectual life, because I don't see a lot of American people do this uh, nowadays, but uh, we really enjoy to have uh, an idea to get great writers to talk a little bit of how they became smart, how they write, and I think your books have an interesting dynamic of uh, when you read it, it, uh, it looks like a history, but at the same time it's very informative. So thank you again to, for being here. I hope to see you in the future, and thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Give my regards to the Brazilian people. (laughs) Thank you.